The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. If you have a Bible, I hope you do open it up to Acts chapter 25. Uh, that's where we are going to be. My name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new around here, I'm uh, really glad that you are spending some time with us, and I uh, hope today is a blessing to you. Uh, if you want to be known, you can fill out a Connect card. It's that blue and gray connect, uh, card that you see in the seat back. Um, you can fill that out at any point during the gathering. You can do it online if you want to. There's a digital uh, Connect card as well. The back side of that card can be used for prayer. So if there's a way we can lift you up before the Lord, we'd love to do that. Our staff loves to pray for our people. And so uh, just let us know how we can help you, how we can pray for you, help get you information about getting involved in the church and so forth. Um, so we're in Acts chapter 25. We've been walking through this book for quite a while now. And I have said at nauseum probably that uh, the book of Acts is all about the power of God unleashed through his people, the church. And we've seen that. We've seen, <clears throat> particularly in these last chapters, we're looking at Paul, uh, who was Saul, a persecutor of the church. He hated Jesus, hated everything that Jesus' people stood for until he met Jesus. Uh, then he gives his life to Christ, becomes a, a follower of Christ, and uh, actually is used as one of the um, greatest advocates of Jesus in the church uh, that really history has ever known. He uh, leads probably tens of thousands to faith in Christ. He plants churches all over the known world at the time throughout the Mediterranean until he is suddenly sidelined. And uh, in these last few chapters, we've been looking at this. Paul is probably around 57 to 59 AD. He comes to Jerusalem and is arrested. And from that point, for eight to 10 years until his eventual death, maybe around 64 to 67 AD, uh, he's in chains. This man who was used mightily by God is suddenly hemmed in and powerless. And so that, that raises a question for us as we look at these chapters, and that is how do we remain faithful? How does anyone remain faithful to the Lord when nothing is changing and it seems like there's no way out? When you feel stuck, uh, when it's just more of the same, how do you remain faithful to the Lord when you feel like nothing's changing and there's no way out. So a real cheery one today. Um, but that's where the Lord takes us in Acts chapter 25. In fact, you know, I, I, I assumed, so when I got, I, I sort of do broad overviews of the passages as I plan. And I had some direction I was going to go with this. And then as I started looking at it a little bit, I was like, ah, there's really not a lot in 25. It's sort of a repeat of kind of what we saw last week. And so maybe I'll combine that with chapter 26 and we'll just sort of do an overview sermon. And then I started digging in more and I realized, man, there's some gold in here. And so I hope that today, even in a passage that seems kind of like nothing's really happening, there's not a lot of movement, no one's really getting saved, um, that, that God would reveal to us the gold in his, in his word. Isn't, isn't he so good that his word is like that, right? That passages that seem sort of like there's nothing there actually have great stuff in them. So um, let me do this. I would like to read the whole passage. Um, I think I want to do that again. Let's read the whole text. It's like 22, 23 verses. Um, so I'll pick up actually at the end of chapter 24. So if you look with me at chapter 24, verse 27, we're going to read down to uh, chapter 25, verse 22. And so uh, it is a little lengthy, but I think it's important to get the whole context. So I'll read it, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll dive in here. Acts 24, starting in verse 27. When two years had elapsed, 
Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them, this is not the custom of the Romans, to give up anyone. Before the accused meet the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they had come together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charges in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding him, regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. You see what I'm talking about? (laughs) Like not a whole lot going on here. And yet, uh, I think there's some really good stuff in here for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, open your word and have you speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray right now uh, that you would empower me to rightly divide this text, that your people might be edified, encouraged, challenged, convicted, and ultimately changed, that we would see the beauty, the glory of Jesus, and cling to him uh, even more tightly as we leave this place. We love you. We thank you for this time in your word, and we pray your blessing over our study in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right. Before we get into things, let's just remember how we got to this place, how Paul got to this place. Um, He was prompted by the Holy Spirit, this is around Acts chapter 20 or so, to go to Jerusalem. And his friends, as he was visiting all these cities on his third missionary journey, his friends would have impressions of the Holy Spirit, and they would say to him, 
don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to go bad for you if you go to Jerusalem, right? The Holy Spirit revealed to them that Paul would face suffering and trial if he went to Jerusalem. And Paul goes, yeah, I know, got to go to Jerusalem. See, for his friends, the revelation that Paul would suffer was a warning that he shouldn't go. But for Paul, it was preparation for when he went. He was resolved. I have to go to Jerusalem. I know it's going to be painful. I don't know what awaits me, but I got to go. So he goes. This is 57 to 59 AD. He shares with James, the leader of the early church and the apostles there, the, uh, the elders, all that God had done among the Gentiles. And they're rejoicing and they're praising God. And then Paul goes to the temple because he's still a Jew, even though he's a Christian, he still honors the Jewish tradition and law. And so he goes to make an offering, right, at the temple. And when he's there, some Jews see him, they recognize him, they think that he is doing something nefarious, and so they attack him, beat him, and then have him arrested by the Romans. So now he finds himself attacked, arrested, and bound, just as the prophet Agabus said that you'd be bound with two chains. Here he is, bound with two chains, And now we've seen him so far defend himself before the Jewish crowds, before the Roman tribune, before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, and before the Roman governor, Felix. He's had four, essentially four trials so far, and he's defended himself in every one of those. In each case, the Jews have not liked what they've heard, but the Romans have actually found no evidence of any crime that he's committed. But they can't let him go because that would frustrate the Jews. And there's already some high tension between Romans and Jews at this time. So they can't just let him go. But neither can they convict him of any false charges because that would undermine Roman law. So they just keep him in this weird place. He's in jail. Two years go by. Felix, who's the previous Roman governor, he's replaced by this guy, Portius Festus. As we looked at last week, um, Felix was a brutal man and caused a lot of uh, contention in the region. And so Festus, Portius Festus comes in, and by all accounts, he's a little bit more level-headed. And so he's, uh, he goes to Jerusalem in order to start building relations with the Jews, okay? When he's there, the Jews come to him, and they go, hey, do us a solid on Paul, would you? Just send him back to us. We'll take care of it. And the reality is they've been plotting. Now, remember, two years has gone by, and they're still trying to kill Paul. Like, this is a case study in how to never let something go. They, they are plotting They're trying to attack him. They want to assassinate him on his way back to Jerusalem. Now, Festus knows none of this, but he's like, listen, man, he's in Caesarea. He's under Roman authority. We're going to try him if there's going to be a trial. So if you've got a case, bring it to us. And so now Paul is facing yet another trial. For the fifth time, he will have to defend himself against essentially no charge. Now, he's been embroiled in this essentially legal battle for two or three years now with no charges, with no conviction, with no sentencing. He's just in this indefinite, ambiguous place of limbo. Nothing for Paul is changing. It's the same thing every day for years. The only thing that changes is the people whom he's defending himself in front of, but everything else is the same. In other words, he's stuck. He's stuck. Now, what do we do when we feel stuck? What do you do when you feel stuck? When life, we get into these seasons where life feels like that movie Groundhog Day, and every day is just like the day before. It's the same thing over and over and over again. For some of you, maybe it's chronic pain 
uh, illness that just will not subside, will not get better. It's the same thing for you every day over and over. For some, it's relational conflict. Maybe there's an issue with a spouse or a child or a family member, and you're at odds with each other, and there seems to be no resolution. And every day, it's the same tension. It's the same pain. It's the same struggle, right? For others of us, it's anxiety or depression that just will not lift. And every day is a fog, and the fog never lifts. And it's just the same feeling over and over and over again. For some, it's financial insecurity. That every time you think it's going to get better, you take two steps back. And you're just struggling and working the best you can to try to meet all your obligations. But nothing seems to, you seem to ever, never be able to make any progress. For some of you, it might be singleness. You're just stuck and you're wondering, Lord, when will I ever have an opportunity to find that person? Some of you couples, maybe it's childlessness just stuck, right? We just can't seem to make any progress in our family, but I think all of us know what it feels like to just be there. And you cry out to the Lord and he feels distant. And it's hard to reconcile the care and the love of Christ with your current experience. How do we remain faithful to the Lord when we just feel stuck and nothing's changing and nothing's getting better? If you're a note taker, you can write this down. The first way is that we wait on the Lord's timing. We wait on the Lord's timing. Um, Let me remind you, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means this, if Christ was enough for you to trust him when things were going well in your life and everything was good and carefree and happy, then he has to be enough for you to trust him when things are hard. And when you're struggling, he doesn't change. Your circumstance changed, but the Lord didn't change. He's the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. And every struggle and every pain and every trial and everything that we go through is sifted through the good and sovereign hand of our God. And it is intended for our ultimate good to create dependence upon him in us. Maybe a psalm will help. Um, This won't be on the screen, but I I want to read it for you, a a few verses. Uh, Psalm 130. The psalmist, he cries out initially. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So this brother, whatever, whether it's circumstances or whether it's his own sin, he is stuck right? He cannot get out of it on his own, and he's crying out to the Lord for mercy and for help. Then he says this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Then he repeats himself, more than watchmen for the morning. My soul waits like a watchman. So he's talking about a fortified city with a watchtower, where a watchman would be watching, right? All night long to make sure no enemy was advancing. So the question is, is morning going to come? Class, is morning going to come? The answer is yes. Unless the Lord returns and takes us home to glory, praise be to God. Unless that happens, morning is going to come. But if you're on night shift, morning can't come soon enough, can it? And yet there's a posture. The psalmist is saying, okay, 
I'm struggling quite a bit here. I'm crying out for mercy, and I'm waiting, and I'm watching for you to change my circumstance or for you to speak to me or give me something, but I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. By the way, where else is there to go? (laughs) Where else is there to go? He is our last, best, and only hope. And so it is a posture of faith to cry out to God in in the midst of pain, sorrow, and unchanging circumstance and to say, I do not like this, but I'm waiting. I'm here. I'm watching. I'm waiting. I'm here. I'm not walking away. Now, I have to imagine, I have to imagine, this is not explicit in the text, but I have to imagine that Paul being stuck under Roman, uh, Roman oppression, jail, for more than two years, the same thing every day. Tell us your case one more time, you know? He's like, Lord, what? You told me I'm going to Rome. What is this? And yet, he shows up every day, right? He is there. He is waiting. He's entrusting himself to the Lord's timing, not his own. But that's not all he does. Look with me at verse 6. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Okay. Verse 6, I'm not going to read all this, but we'll look at a couple lines. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, that's Festus, he goes down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal. And then he says this, when, when he arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem. They stood around him bringing many serious charges, many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul now argues his defense. And look at, the, look at the shift in detail here. He says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. The original charges against Paul all had to do with Ro- the uh, Jewish religion. So if you remember, remember back to Acts 21, when Paul's in the temple and the Jews attack him, the charges are these. He's speaking against the people of God. He's speaking against the law of God. And he's speaking against the temple of God. So all related to their, to their faith practice, right? Against our people, against our law, against our temple. Even last week when we saw um, that guy Tertullus, it's a slick-talking, ambulance-chasing lawyer that they hired to accuse Paul in chapter 24. He even says, he's, this guy's a plague, Right? He's a disease. He stirs up riots on, among the Jews. He's a ringleader of this sect of our faith, and he tried to profane the temple. So it's all the same charges about their religion. But now Paul says, okay, I haven't done anything against the law or the temple, but then he says, nor have I committed anything against Caesar. That's a change. Now, whether this is the Jews who after two years have realized that their religious argument is going to go nowhere and they are trying to uh, make charges against him according to Roman law or whether this is Paul upping the ante, we don't know. But I'm reminded that the charges against Jesus from the Jews were all about their religion and they went nowhere until they accused him of being an insurrectionist and claiming to be a king who would overthrow the Roman government. And then it got serious. So perhaps their accusation is now you know, more towards the Roman law. But either way, Paul's like, it's not true. 
Now, Festus, he wants this off the docket, right? He's new on the job. He's like, this is a waste of my time. Let's get this moved. So he says, Paul, how about I be the judge, but let's go back to Jerusalem and we'll try you there. And Paul says, no, not going to happen. It would be a waste of our time. Paul says this, if I'm guilty according to Roman law, then, then try me according to Roman law, convict me according to Roman law, and execute me according to Roman law. If I've done anything deserving of death, I'm not afraid to die. But essentially, he says, I'm done playing these games. Okay, we're not doing this anymore. If I'm guilty, then let justice prevail, but we gotta, we gotta stop playing these games until he says, I appeal to Caesar. And I imagine uh, a hush kind of fell across the crowd. Oh, <laughs> Paul's escalating. Okay, now we have appeals courts today, but what that is is, you know, you have a trial and a conviction and then someone appeals the conviction and it goes to an appeals court most of the time. Okay, this is not that. For, for Paul to appeal to Caesar meant, let's take this entire trial, the accusations, the trial, conviction, and sentencing, because none of that has happened yet. He says, let's take all of that, let's appeal to the highest authority in the land, which would be to face the Roman emperor. We're going to take this entire case out of the lower court's hands to the highest court. That's where I want to go. And because Paul was a Roman citizen, he had that right. So he appeals to Caesar. Some of you might be asking, why would he do that? Why would you appeal to Caesar? Why would you do this? Why would you escalate things like this? And I'm so glad you asked because I have some thoughts. First of all, Paul knew there would be no justice for him in Jerusalem. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. Secondly, the Jews are the ones who are now accusing him of breaking Roman law. So he's like, okay, this, we're in Caesar's tribunal. This is the law. Let's, let's try me according to this law. But third and most importantly, remember back in Acts chapter 23, Paul's in jail a day and a night and another day and another night. And who shows up to him in his jail cell? Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? You have testified to me in Jerusalem. In other words, your work there is done. But you must still testify to me in Rome. So there's no reason to go back to Jerusalem because the work there is done, but I got to get to Rome. And so by appealing to Caesar, Paul now has a one-way ticket to Rome. This is how he's going to complete his mission. And see, What's so beautiful about this is that Paul is not concerned for self-preservation the way we are. He says in Acts 20, I don't account my life as anything. I, kill me or don't. I don't care. He says, all I'm concerned about is that I complete the mission that Jesus has given me. Now, this is a huge risk. He's going to Rome. He doesn't know what awaits him there. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. There's so much uncertainty. There is so much ambiguity into how he'll get to Rome and what will happen when he gets to Rome. He can't foresee any of what's about to happen. For sure he doesn't see the, the shipwreck coming in Acts chapter 27. I'm sure that was another, you know, turn. He's like, what in the world? But he knows one thing and one thing only. He is certain of one thing. He is absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord is with him. And when he knows the Lord is with him, it really doesn't, and nothing else really matters. 
that was enough for him to know that the Lord was with him. He knew that his life was not in the Jews' hands. His life was not in Festus's hands. His life was not in King Agrippa's hands. His life was not even in Caesar, the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor's hands. That would be Nero at this time. He knows his life is in Jesus's hands and he's secure. No matter what comes his way. And so how do we stay faithful to the Lord when nothing's changing and there seems to be no way out? First, we wait on the Lord's timing, but secondly, we rest in the Lord's hands. That's my second point for you note takers. We rest in the Lord's hands. Now, last week I asked you if you were certain, if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord was with you, how would that change your perspective on your current circumstance? And I wonder if any of us have put time into thinking about that this week. If I was sure that God was with me, whatever I'm facing right now, how would that change my perspective? It doesn't necessarily change the circumstance. And by the way, Paul never prayed for a change of circumstance. Read the whole New Testament. Paul never, cha- never prayed that his circumstance would change. But how does it change my perspective? Because there is so much uncertainty in our lives, isn't there? So much ambiguity. So much that we don't know. Um, so my, my oldest son, who's here in the front row, he just, he just turned 15. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about the future, right? And like next year, I'll have two high schoolers. And the year after that, I'll have three teenagers in my house. So pray for us. And... Um, and some of you have launched your kids out into adulthood. And so we're thinking about that, like college and I mean, driving and then college and then whatever's next in their lives. And there's so much uncertainty and it feels anxiety producing to launch your kids out into the world and be like, hope we did a good job, right? As I think about the future of this church, like we have a contract to lease the place we're in right now through the summer of 2023. And after that, we might be under a tree. I don't know. Okay, because I don't know if you've noticed, but real estate in Nashville is a little bit expensive and there's none of it. So where are we going to go in in the summer of 23? I have no idea. Okay, the way people are in and out because Asheville is so transient and like gaining momentum with people. I mean, there's so much ambiguity and so much uncertainty. And the thing is, some of you would say you're risk averse and maybe you are, but I think the issue is not risk, it's uncertainty. It's not like you take a risk every day that you get in your car. You risk your entire life every time you buckle into that car and turn it on. And some of you are risking a lot, okay? Um, So it's not like we all take risks. The question is, is it a risk I know? Do I know the odds? Do I know the, cer- the, the cer- you know, what, what is the certainty here versus the unknown, the uncertain? What makes us afraid, I don't think is the risk, it's the uncertainty, it's the unknown. In fact, uh, in my studies this week, I came across this thing called the Ellsberg Paradox. I got a prop and everything, it's gonna be awesome. Okay, here's what the Ellsberg Paradox says. I got an A and a B, let me get these right. Is this A for you guys and B? Is that what it, okay. All right, here we go. Two cups, both have 10 M&Ms in them. This cup has five green and five yellow, okay? 
This cup also has 10 M&Ms, green and yellow, not showing you what the percentage of the breakout is, okay? Could be five and five, could be eight and two, could be one and nine, who knows? Only me. What are your odds? If I said, pull out a green one, what are your odds? 50-50, one and two, good. If I said, pull out a green one, what are your odds? Don't know. No idea. It's uncertain. $5 if you can pull blindly a green M&M out of this, this cup. $5 if you can pull a green M&M out of this cup. Which one do you choose? A. Overwhelmingly, 95% on average would choose cup A. Okay, let's flip it. Pull out a yellow one, give you five bucks. Same, same thing. Do you choose A or B? A again. What? Okay, this is 50-50. This, there's still 10. But if it's not 50-50, that means one chance is going to be lower, one chance is going to be higher that you actually succeed. But we'll still choose the known percentage over the unknown. Every time. It doesn't make logical sense. That's why it's called a paradox. Okay? By the way, eight green, two yellow. Okay. So... Here's my point in that, okay? Why do, we always, why do we go for the one that has the known odds? Because the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. But listen, the only thing that is certain in your lives, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that he's with you. That's it. There's no guarantee that you will make it home from this church service today. That is uncertain but the Lord's with you, that is for sure. And if you know that the Lord is with you, then what does it matter what else you face? Really? What does it matter? That hymn we sing sometimes here, in Christ alone, you, you know the song. There's a line that says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. If my life is in his hands and he cares for me and he's with me, then what does it matter what comes my way? What Jesus says, how many of you will gain an hour of your life by worrying about what's to come? You see the birds out there? They're chirping and having a good time. They're not worried about where their next meal is going to come from. And by the way, aren't you more important to me than those stupid birds? Jesus didn't say that. He likes the birds. <laughs> they poop on my car, so I don't like them. You see what I'm saying? You are more important to the Lord than those silly birds, and yet he cares for them. Don't you trust that he'll care for you too? So Paul is going to Caesar, and his future is unknown, but he is not alone. And brothers and sisters, I don't know what is in your future or mine. I don't know what awaits you, but you are not alone. He is with you. If you are in Christ, he is with you. So rest because your life is in the Lord's hands. All right, I got to hit the gas. Uh, you guys with me still? Okay. I'm going to go ahead and give you my last point because I'm not going to read the whole passage. We'll, we'll talk about it. Last thing, if you're a note taker, how do we maintain faithfulness to the Lord? We wait on the Lord's timing. We rest in the Lord's hands. And finally, we trust in the Lord's plan. We trust in the Lord's plan. 
So starting in verse 13, uh, King Agrippa, who's um, just real briefly, uh, Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus when he was born. You might remember that from the birth narratives of Christ. Okay, Herod Agrippa the first was part of Jesus's trials and, and helped send him to execution. Herod Agrippa the second is who we're talking about here. Okay, uh, he's now a king. Uh, kings, the kingship at this time is more like the royal family. Not a lot of power. It's more pomp and circumstance. It's a PR campaign. Okay. Uh, that's what's going on here. So King Agrippa, he comes to town, and Festus, who is the authority, he's the Roman governor, he's like, hey, Agrippa, let me run something by you. And he recaps the story for about what's going on with Paul. So we're going to talk, we're going to look at Paul's defense before Agrippa next week, but here's what I want you to, to look at. Look with me at verse 15, chapter 25, verse 15. In his recap, he says, when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, that's Paul, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. They wanted a conviction. They're like, here's our case. Can you just convict him? And Festus is like, hey, I know I'm new on the job, but that's not how the Roman law works. We have to have a trial. Like the accuser and the accused have to be in the same room. Okay, so we're going to do that first. But he makes it very clear. They want a conviction. But here's what else is interesting. I'll point out the verse numbers and just look with me at how many times in chapter 25 Paul's innocence is stated plainly. Look at verse 7. The Jews came down from Jerusalem. They stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Verse 8. Paul says, Neither against the law of the Jews nor the temple nor Caesar have I committed any offense. Verse 10. Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. Um, and I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Verse 11, if I'm a wrongdoer, then let me be punished. But if there's nothing to their charges, no one can give me up to them. Now we look at verse 18. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in this case. Now we didn't look at these, but next week we'll look at verse 25. He says, uh, he had done nothing deserving death. Verse 26, he basically says, I have nothing definite to write to Caesar about Paul. There's no charge. And then in verse 27, it seems unreasonable to send a prisoner to Caesar and not to indicate any charges against him. In fact, Festus was shocked that the Jews who pleaded so heavily to have a trial for Paul basically had no case. You know, he's thinking, oh, that got some serious stuff. Paul's been in prison two years. Let's hear this case immediately. And then they come to the case and they have, it's nothing. It's kangaroo court. There is no way that Paul should have been arrested, much less kept in jail for this long with no charges, with no conviction, with no, like, it, it's all trumped up. There's nothing to it. This is not the way it was supposed to go. This is not, this doesn't make any sense that Paul is in jail this way, and yet it was the sovereign plan of the Lord. All the way back to Acts chapter 9, when Paul um, becomes a Christian, when he gives his life to Jesus, and there's this man, Ananias, who is sent to Paul to pray for him that he can receive his sight back. And Jesus says to Ananias, Paul is my chosen instrument to take my name before Gentiles, and then he says, and kings. 
And very shortly here, Paul is going to stand before King Agrippa and then on to the Roman emperor. And, and here's the crux of the matter. Look at verse 19. Here's all he knows, uh, Festus. The Jews had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Some of your texts will say, whom Paul asserts to be resurrected. So now we get to the heart of the matter. See, in previous trials, resurrection was mentioned broadly because the contention was with the Jews and Jesus, and the Jews were separated. Some of, the, some of them believed in resurrection, some of them didn't. But now we see very plainly the heart of the matter, which is the resurrection of Jesus, that this Jesus was killed, and Paul asserts that he's living. Now, you have to know that for most Jews, um, those who believed in resurrection, right? So Sadducees didn't, Pharisees did. For those Jews that believed in resurrection, really, resurrection was, was not much more than a vague and distant hope of a better future. That's all that meant for them. So, for example, in John chapter 11, um, Lazarus, who's a good friend of Jesus, as he dies. And Jesus hears about him dying, and then he stays where he is for a couple days, and then he comes, and Mary's like, he stinketh, and that whole interchange, right? And when he gets, that's the King James, he stinketh, because uh, he'd been dead for like four days. And so both of Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they confront Jesus, and they're like, where were you? You could have done something about this. And Jesus says to Martha, Lazarus will rise again. And Martha goes, yeah, 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 I know at the resurrection. But basically, she's like, that'll, I mean, but how does that help me now? Because, I mean, the resurrection is then, and I'm hurting now. And Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Meaning, resurrection is not just something to hope for then. Resurrection is someone to hope in now. The problem is Jesus did not come the way that they anticipated the Messiah to come. Uh, Isaiah 53 reminds us that he came with no form or majesty that we should look at him. He came in weakness, not in power. He came in poverty, not in wealth. Right? He came uh, in seeming defeat, not in victory. And so Jesus is falsely accused, just like Paul has been, Jesus is tossed back and forth between the Romans and the Jews, just like Paul is being. Jesus is ultimately wrongly convicted and unjustly executed. And as Jesus is giving his life on the cross, ultimately to pay for the sin of mankind, he's convicted as a criminal of Rome. He's executed. And everyone who had put their hope and trust in Jesus as their promised Messiah, their hopes were crushed. This wasn't supposed to happen, even though Jesus kept promising them it would until the third day. And on the third day, Jesus proved that he was the, res the resurrection and the life by walking out of the grave. And here's what that means for you and me. For those who have surrendered to Christ and have put their, our hope and trust in Jesus alone, the promise for us is not of a problem-free life. Jesus says in John 16, in this world you will face tribulation, you will have trials, you will suffer. 
But he says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Because Jesus is the resurrection and life, he has overcome the world, which means that we have the promise of his power and his presence with us no matter what we face. So all along the way, the Lord has met Paul. He has reassured Paul. He has strengthened Paul. He has empowered Paul, and he has given Paul courage to speak his name before Gentiles and now kings. Let me remind you, Acts chapter 16, Paul has this, he's, on, he's, he's up against kind of a wall, right? We don't know where to go. We're not getting clear direction from the Lord. And in the night, he has a vision of a Macedonian man and saying, come help us. And so they feel like the Lord is compelling them to go into the continent of Europe. He leads them. Acts chapter 17, he comes into the city of Athens and is provoked in his spirit by all the idolatry, ends up having an opportunity to go speak before the thought leaders of the city of Athens at the Areopagus. Acts chapter 18, he's wrestling, he's afraid, what's going to happen? The Lord speaks to him in the night, do not be afraid, but continue preaching, for I have many in this city who are my people. Acts chapter 20, I'm constrained by the spirit that I must go to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits me only that pain and affliction are to come, but I must go. Acts chapter 22, 23, 24, he stands before the the Roman tribune, before the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, now before the governor, Felix, and, and next week we'll see even before Festus and King Agrippa. Eventually the Lord will carry him through a shipwreck all the way to Rome where he'll stand before Nero. Here's what I learned from that. Sometimes, oftentimes, maybe most of the time, the sovereign plan of God feels wildly inefficient. (laughs) But his ways are not our ways. And so no no matter how long you feel stuck, like inertia is just so strong you can't get any movement, no matter how long you feel stuck in the same situation, in the same circumstance, in the same pain, no matter how winding the path of your life, how many unexpected twists and turns there are along the way, you can, in Christ, expect his power, expect his presence in any and in every situation and circumstance that you face, and you can embrace his care, his sovereign control, and his ability to accomplish his will in you and through you for his glory and for your ultimate good. That's what's true. That's what Acts 25 teaches us. That's why it's in the Bible. Now, as we wrap up, I want to just throw a couple of questions up on the screen for you to consider. Um, As I say every week, you can take a picture of the screen Uh, When they're all up, you can write them down as they come, but I would encourage you to take these questions with you uh, outside this room, whether you take them to community group, whether you take them to lunch, um, car ride, whatever, um, process them with the Lord, but also, you know, take them to community, to to other people and, and process them together. So the first question is this. Number one, where am I stuck or where am I waiting on the Lord? Now, I know not everyone's in that position, but many of you might feel stuck or in, a, or in a, a pattern of hovering and waiting, you know? Um, what is that? Why? Where am I stuck? Where do I feel like I can't get traction? Um, 
What's the Lord trying to teach me in that season, you know? What, what can I hold on to while I'm waiting? There's a lot of scripture passages about waiting on the Lord. So where do I feel stuck in my life? What am I waiting on? And um, yeah, only you can answer that question. Secondly, why is it difficult for me to trust the Lord when the future is uncertain? And I know the answer is because it's uncertain. Okay, but the Jesus is certain. He's unchanging. He's with you. He's for you. So why do we resist? What, what in us has a hard time entrusting ourselves to the Lord when we don't know what the next step is, when we don't know what's ahead of us? Why is it difficult? What's underneath that, right? In other words, does it, is it revealing to me that certainty is more important than the presence of God with me? Is it revealing to me that my intended future is more important than what the Lord wants to do in me? Why is it difficult for me to trust in the Lord when the future is uncertain? And then finally, how can hope in Christ empower me to rely on God's presence and his promises regardless of my circumstances? No matter what the future holds, no matter how foggy it is, no matter how much pain and sorrow is ahead of me, how can hope in Christ empower me to rely on him, on his presence, the, the promise of his spirit within me, the promises of his word to me, that no matter what comes my way, I can trust him and I can cling to him. How can hope in Christ empower me to rely on God's presence and promises regardless of my circumstance? Okay, so I'll leave these questions up on the screen for you. Um, we're gonna move into just a time of silent reflection. So I just implore you to stay seated for a, a minute or two here in quiet. Uh, and then when you're ready, you can make your way to the communion tables. A communion is something that we celebrate weekly as a reminder of the gospel, right? That Jesus, um, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood will be spilled for you. And so we can hold on to these promises. We can cling to the word of God and know that we have the presence of God with us because Jesus on the cross was forsaken. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured the wrath of God for us. He, he, he suffered in our place, not so that we wouldn't suffer, but so that in our suffering, we'd become more like him. And so we come to these tables in thanksgiving, in repentance, in trust. If you're not a Christian, you can stay in your seat during this time, but um, when it's time for communion, you guys can make your way to these stations. Um, there's uh, bread on two stations at each table, uh, juice and wine, and you can come down these center aisles and then make your way back to your seats. There's giving boxes in the back if you have a prayer request. Uh, if you're new here and want to drop your connect card, or if you're a regular and want to give, uh, those boxes are available. And then we're going to sing a couple songs and um, remind ourselves of the gospel through music. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for these beautiful people and just for their eagerness to hear uh, from you. I pray that you would bring encouragement, that you would bring transformation as we learn to trust you more and more, no matter what we face. And so for those of us in uncertain and in ambiguous times, um, may you be our rock and our sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus and pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's just be still before the Lord for a minute or two here.